Welcome to the Iowa Agronomy Update, where we talk all things agronomics. I'm your host, Brent Schwinnaker, and this podcast is brought to you by Asgro DeKalb Brand Seeds. Hey everyone, and welcome back to a new edition of the Iowa Agronomy Update. We're uh, into the month of October here, finally, and uh, getting into some, trying to get into harvest anyway, and we've got a, uh, a friend of the podcast with us here, Brad Sherwin. Hey, welcome back, Brad. Hey, Brent. Glad to be here. Hey, so we, um, Brad, do you believe in jinxes? No. Well, neither do I, but I'm starting to wonder here. So we, we've been talking about rain uh, pretty much, I'd say, about every other podcast through uh, maybe, when did we start this, March or April? Uh, we've seen to be talking about rain in your area quite a bit, Brad, and I, 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 I hope we didn't jinx, uh, jinx us with this, uh, this weather, but uh, it was actually a month ago we recorded this early September podcast, and the title of that one was Rain, Rain, Go Away. Uh, didn't work, right? <laughs> so uh, we're we've been sitting here. This is Monday uh, Monday morning, uh, October eighth, and we've been sitting here drizzly and wet all uh, all weekend, and we're staring at what another two to six inches of rain coming, depending upon where you're at. So um, we're gonna shift gears today. How's that sound, Brad? We're gonna not talk about rain. That sounds that sounds good. Mother Nature has a cruel sense of humor sometimes. <laughs> she she can be very fickle. That is for sure. So we. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about fertility today, and and Brad, you uh, you have a lot of expertise in this area, and and really, you know what, you know when we think about fertility, we I know I know we'd like to be further along in harvest right now and and be done with that, but it's probably the next thing we need to start thinking about uh, in the terms of our our crop cycle, right? So if we get the crop off, then we need to start thinking about twenty nineteen. Uh, 2019 decisions, and this is probably the first decision that needs needs to get made is around fertility. Would you agree with that, Brad? I would. I would agree. I think right now is a great time for a lot of us to kind of sit back and assess the situation, the season that we've had. If we think back to the last few years, we've had some pretty good yields come off a lot of these fields, and the economics being what they are, many fields were probably only going back with a maintenance type program on our fertilizers, which probably is in all likelihood hasn't been keeping pace with what we've been taking off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll probably dive into that a little bit more there as far as those cycles and maintenance levels and, and things like that. And I mean, you know, Brad, we get started thinking about, you know, timing, time of year on, on things on how often do we soil sample? When, when's the best timing in your scenario, in your, in your best case scenario world, Brad, would you, what are the pros and cons of, of spring versus fall soil samples? Let's start there. Well, the benefit to the fall soil sampling, if we're looking at our macronutrients, so basically our P and K levels, is that we can get the samples back in time enough where we can make a decision and get an application out there in the fall. And if we think back, our potash in particular isn't going to be readily available. It takes time for that potash to break down. So the more time we can give the potash to be out in the field, get it mixed in with our tillage, the more beneficial it's going to become in the long term. 
Now, if we've got a field that's highly productive, it's consistently producing high yields, then a different strategy going to the spring sampling may be a better option because we've got an opportunity to really assess, okay, here's what my crop has available in this field at this point in time. And generally in those fields, nutrients aren't the limiting factor. That's why they're highly productive. So it really depends on your strategy, where you're coming from. Are you trying to improve the productivity of the field? Then fall sampling is probably a better starting point. If we've already got highly productive acres, then maybe the spring strategy might make more sense. It, Brad, in, in both scenarios, spring and fall, are you are you using uh, basically bushel removal or crop removal as part of the scenario in both of those scenarios, or is that just strictly a fall type environmental uh, system or or not? I do. I look at uh, there's some great little apps out there that you can use if you've already harvested the field. You know what the field average is. You can plug that yield in and get a reasonably good idea of what has been taken out of that crop, both in the grain, the stover, and total. You can take your soil sample, get the results back, and deduct what's been removed based on the yield from what the soil test tells you, and have a pretty reasonable idea of, okay, this is what I need to apply to get to my next year's goal. Right. So I know for for a number of years, Brad, we, you know, thinking back to, you know, even five, six years ago, we were even still kind of debating the whole uh, grid sample versus zone sample or, or what what specific, you know, what specific uh, test sample or, you know, test results are you looking for or what are you going to run for? You know, it, are we still running zone samples or is grids pretty much the way that, that most uh, most people are running those now? Or where, where are we sitting at and, and pros and cons between those as well? Well, grids versus zones, I would say it's a mixed bag. There are a lot of operations that have been very successful with zones, and if that's working for them, that's great. It really depends on the management style and strategy that each operator has. I would say the bulk of the growers, at least in my area, are using grid sampling. The equipment that's out there is readily adaptable, and it's a good strategy. Mm-hmm. Be consistent. But you can go either way. I think there's pros and cons to both. Yeah. What um, on on those? I I think kind of what I'm hearing you say is maybe if if you have a method, I mean, stick with the strategy. If it's working for you, stick with it. If if not, maybe dive into those samples and and see what what your limiting factors are. Right. It, the important thing is really getting a complete analysis. That's the the trick. And as you get into zones or grids and then and the expense to get a complete analysis you know is pretty significant it's a major investment so you have to balance the cost benefit ratio and how that fits into the operation if a grower's maybe getting a a new piece of ground that they haven't farmed before you really have no history back on uh, background on it that's where i think the grids are probably a better starting point Uh, go in there get a a baseline of sorts Uh, it's well worth it to spend the extra money in that situation to get a complete analysis Mm -hmm. so you really understand both your primary secondary and micronutrient levels and then you can make your your decisions your management decisions off of uh, better numbers. Sure. So you touched on one of my scenarios I was going to throw at you basically a scenario where you picked up a new farm so you're saying go out and get get that baseline analysis so you can start to make those decisions from there. 
let's let's say you're you're now for anywhere from three to five years into this new farm. You got that complete analysis three to five years ago. Uh, you made your decisions. You have good spatial data uh, behind uh, the crop removal every year behind that base level analysis. When do you need to pull the trigger again on your next baseline analysis? Or is, the, or is good spatial data enough to know what you're taking out? It's, that's tough because each growing season seems to be a little different. I would recommend taking your grid samples at least every four years. Every three to four years is probably a, a good assessment. And you may want to make some fine-tuning, some adjustments in that. Uh, you look at this year with the excessive rains that we've had and understand our nitrogen, sulfur, boron are leachable. And we may only be into the second, going into our third year in that it might be well worth it to go out and get another set of grid samples on that field so we can make some adjustments because those nutrients aren't going to be there. Right. And if we're looking at those samples from two or three or even four years ago thinking, all right, my sulfur level is good, my boron level is good, I go into next year and I'm going to come up short. That's going to cost us. And it's that time difference because of our sampling interval right. that we we lose out on. So we hate to see that happen. That's where you need to be able to make those adjustments in some situations, depending on your area and what kind of weather you've been given. Yeah, Brad, you, you touched on earlier, uh, mainly about the, the maintenance levels and, and crop removal rates. And, and it seems to me that, you know, eight to 10 years ago, we, we continually had the conversation, you know, it was right around that time where we consistently were taking, you know, 200 plus bushel off of these acres, right? And we, we got to that point, you know, are we putting enough back in now that we're continually move, removing this? It seems like we're at a new point now again in in our yield curves or the cycle uh, that we're constantly taking uh, 240, 250, you know, and, and even last year, in some cases, 260 plus off of these acres, does this conversation need to happen again? Or are we still putting enough back on? Because if you if you fertilize for 240, which is good maybe uh, eight years ago, is it enough now? That is an excellent point. And if you look at some of the more recent research that's come out, and in fact, Dr. Bilow from the University of Illinois has shown through his studies over the past number of years that if you've got traded hybrids, that your nutrient requirements are 10 to 13% higher. If you look at some even more recent studies that I've looked at, uh, comparing today's can, uh, genetics to the genetics from you know, 20 and 30 years ago, which was about the time a lot of our fertility recommendations and algorithms were developed, mm -hmm. that today's genetics are 30% higher in their nutrient use profile. So just going with a basic uh, removal rate only and looking at the genetics we've got today, I think there's definitely a gap there that we need to reevaluate. Yeah. Yeah, and are are you comfortable? Where are you at on on these macro or your dry fertilizer uh, recommendations or your analysis? Are are you to the point where you wanna you wanna fertilize these every year or on these guys that are rotated? Are you fine with a two year rate or there's a lot of different a lot of different people that fall into both of these camps? You know where. Give me your scenario here, Brad. I am definitely in the camp of fertilize every acre every year. If we look at 
a two-year spread. We're going to go into corn next year. We pull off uh, good yields, 230, 240, 260, whatever they might be. And then we're going to come back with soybeans the following year. Uh, generally, a large portion of what we applied this fall has already been utilized by that corn. And if we think about soybeans and we get into the late flowering stage where it's starting to develop the seeds, uh, soybeans have a higher potassium uptake requirement than does corn. And so if we're only in a two-year spread, we're really shortchanging that bean crop from what it really could potentially produce right. simply because of our fertilizer strategy. Right. So I'm definitely in the... And the camp. increase in yields that were taken off in the corn probably yep. as well. Yep, definitely. So I'm yeah. definitely of the camp every acre every year. Yeah. And I would agree. I In my own operation, I've, I've switched to that and uh, been a, a big... Uh, a big player in in our system, so and I I agree the the yields that we're taking off now uh, are are good for the first year, but you you can't feel comfortable about what's left for the for the second year, especially with our like you said you, you know your your nutrients that are highly soluble in water uh, aren't you know after this year. Uh, can't be much left, right? I mean, we we've talked rain all year, right? We just we've already we've already said that, so they they can't be around much longer. Uh, so so really, there there's you know uh, an environmental factor, a yield factor, a lot of in, a lot of factors here that go into year after year decisions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, let me let me throw another scenario at here at you here, Brad. So if if you get that baseline uh, analysis back. Uh, what's what's the first number you're looking at when you get the get the report back? First thing I always tell anybody on a soil test you want to look at is your pH. You've got to start with the pH. If that pH gets too low, and by too low we generally mean below six, we know we're going to have issues with phosphorus tie-up. In low pH soils, mm -hmm. our phosphorus gets tied up with the iron and aluminum. Conversely, on the high side, if our pHs get above 7.5 and 8, and we see that quite often, our phosphorus is tied up there as well. So we really need to start looking at the soil test with the pH. Mm -hmm. And generally, if our pH is high, it's because we have a drainage issue that's not letting the hydrogen flush out. So sure. that's where I would tell everybody you always want to start looking at the pH. Okay. So if you get that uh, analysis report back and it's it's saying anywhere from 5.9 to 6.1, uh, what's your first decision? Lime? Got to put some lime out there. Uh, a good just general rule of thumb is every thousand pounds of lime is going to raise my pH a tenth of a point. And you've got to get an analysis. It really depends on the quality of the lime yeah. you have and, and the fineness of the, right. the grain. But as a general rule of thumb, that's a, a good starting point. Right. Yeah, and, and, and lime... Lime application, I mean, they, you, you have your quarries that are in certain pockets and, and certainly quality and every quarry is different and you get guys that swear by one or swear by the other and and vice versa, right? So, uh, and and really then you've got the guys in the no-till country that, that really can't till in that. Um, and so you're, you're really, you really have to let that lime kind of filter down through the profile and even a little bit longer. So it, it's kind of a strategy play there on what's the best case scenario. So you're talking, you know, put two ton of lime out and you're only, you know, best case scenario by the time you get the full benefit from it is maybe go from a, to a six, one to a six, three. Right. And yeah. so is that something we need to be addressing more often than uh, take a glance at it every four years. Right. And, and so, you know, what, 
is there a better way we can be managing this, especially maybe in some of our high anhydrous no-till type environments? Well, you bring up a really good point. I think there is. I think when we talk about pH and, and keeping that pH or adjusting that pH, if we've got a lot of anhydrous going out there, any ammoniacal source of nitrogen, whether it's anhydrous, ammonium sulfate, we need to remember that when that ammonium ion converts to the nitrate ion, that's a very acidic process. That's going to bring pH down. So if we're producing really high yields, we're putting a lot of anhydrous out there, then we're probably looking at a situation where we need to have a maintenance lime application going out there every year. Maybe it's only a thousand or fifteen hundred pounds of lime, but mm -hmm. in those situations, what we don't want to do is forgive yield mm -hmm. and because we're only sampling the soil every three or four years, realize three years from now, oh, I'm low, and now I've got to put lime out, and then it's another two or three years to get the pH back up. We've lost opportunity. We've lost yield potential, lost money for six years in a situation like that. So yeah. I think in a lot of cases where we're really producing high yields, we're putting a lot of nitrogen, in particular in hydrous out there, then probably a maintenance, a yearly maintenance program with lime would be a good thing. Would you recommend like a, a Pell lime with your dry fertilizer in that scenario, or would you get go back to that fine, that fine granular lime? It's a it's a good tool. You know, we run into a lot of situations. Growers, a lot of growers farm a lot of ground that's cash rented, mm -hmm. and so you don't know how long you're going to have it. And unless you've got something written in the agreement that if you're going to spend the money to put lime and take care of that ground and you're not going to get it the following year, then you get part of that cost back. Right. Uh, I know a lot of growers have, have kind of worked that into language yep. and that's a good strategy. If it's cash rented ground and you don't know, you know how long I'm going to have it, then the Pell lime can be a really good option. Uh, you've got those really variable soils. Your pHs are going from a, a mid to low five to a mid to high eight yeah and we see that quite often you know especially in that des moines low yeah then using the pell lime as a strategy to putting it in a band uh, minimizing the amount of phosphorus fixation in that band is a good strategy helps manage cost and get more maximize the productivity out of that piece of ground sure so it seems to me like you're saying pell lime is probably short term short term band-aid yeah. uh, probably a better better fine, fine lime would, would be a better long-term solution. Yeah, definitely. I think if you're going to look at the cost and the benefit, the Pell lime in more of a zone or strip till situation is going to make more economic sense and more yield productivity sure. sense uh, than trying to broadcast it. If we're going to broadcast yeah. it, we really need to have ag lime. Yeah. So you, you've moved past the lime now and you, you feel pretty comfortable. What, what, are the next, what are the next things you're going to look at? Probably your macro uh, nutrients is probably your next place, I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, I, I look at uh, phosphorus and potassium. You know, in a lot of cases, the phosphorus isn't really our limiting factor anymore. Uh, there's a lot of animal waste that goes out on a lot of these fields. And we focus so much on nitrogen and maybe the phosphorus side of it that we're kind of losing sight of the potash. And I think if anybody looks at the fields that we see uh, this year, we see a lot of stock quality related issues. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that goes back to potassium. Uh, interesting study came out of Iowa State last year that, that showed if we over apply nitrogen, we actually reduce the potassium uptake. Mm -hmm which I thought was interesting. I'd seen right. that same similar study years ago. So mm -hmm. when we start looking at the macronutrients and the P and K, the P I'm not overly concerned about, but when I start right. to look at potassium, I think it's really important 
that you have to look at both the PPM number and the percent K in a lot of fields. And that's where we're starting to see some some shortfalls. We're one and a half, two percent K, even though our PPMs may be two fifty or three hundred, which you know, according to our guidelines say we're very high, mm-hmm. but the plant can't keep up. Our genetics have improved, our populations are higher. Yeah. And so that concentration of K needs to be higher. Yeah. So <clears throat> let me throw another scenario out here, Brad. So let's say you picked up that rented piece of ground. The the baseline analysis isn't great. You don't have it in your language uh, as far as you, you're not sure how long you're going to have it. Maybe three year, maybe a three-year lease. You're on your first year of it. P and K numbers are low. Do you, I mean, you've seen a lot of guys go out and say, well, I, I can't afford to, to bring this these numbers up to then just hand it off to the next guy on year number four. So I'm just going to put more nitrogen out and and mask the deficiencies in in my macros. Is that the right scenario? I know it's not the ideal, but I think we run into it more than what we'd like. I think you're right. It's it's not the right scenario, but it's a very common scenario right. we run into. If we look at the results, the soil test values that we have, what we have to work with, how much uh, can that field support? I think the best way is to probably start by adjusting populations and get that population that we're going to put out there more closely aligned to what that field can actually feed and support. Be realistic on your realistic, yield goal, yeah. right? You know, I, I think a good starting point there is is look at the APH. Every field has an APH history. And you can add 20% to that. I think that's a comfortable number. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we're shooting for 50% above APH, that's probably not realistic. Right. doesn't mean we can't get it. We see a lot of yeah. fields that produce. So a lot of them do it last year, right? Yep. Mother Nature can be very cooperative or very mm-hmm. cruel. But I think if you just... <laughs> Knock uh, on wood, please, this time. Yep. Thank you. I think if we just start with a little bit more realistic value, uh, add 20% to the APH is a good target to shoot for mm-hmm. in that situation. Equipment has evolved. If we've got that rented ground, we've got the soil test back, we spent the money, got some good valuable information there, then we can make some good decisions. Uh, strip till, zone uh, yeah. banding of, of fertilizers sure. is probably really one of the things that's going to get us to that next level in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. From that scenario where it's cash rented ground, you may or may not have it in a few years, I think that's a, a great option to still maximize the potential that you can get out of the field, but mm-hmm. minimize the amount of input that you have to put into it, sure. not knowing if I'm gonna have it over a longer period. Yeah. So so you just kinda of got my mind uh, turning here, Brad, on this uh, you know, zone zone till, strip till, you know, putting that uh, uh, banding that, that fertilizer in, maybe maybe lowering some of the overall fertility requirements if you get it banded in the right zone. You know, if you think back to, you know, a lot of broadcast, a lot of broadcast drive fertilizer application was the first to go to zone recommendations, right? And and start to, you know, precision apply, even if it was just broadcast over the, over the top, you know, we were the first to, to kind of, you know, that was an area that was first to lead in the precision world. Uh, now you're taking it to a whole new level and, and there's certainly guys out there doing it, uh, but, you know, can... Can we, you know, in our no-till areas, get to a better zoned um, zone scenario in our side hills and, and things like that instead of our true, um, 
better type running fields, you know, your square flats and your, you know, good bottom grounds, things like that, that, um, you know, those, those side hills will tend to bring your, your averages down quicker than, than they bring the bottoms, bring it up. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely some advantages here and, and we focus a lot on the micronutrients, the macronutrients, the yeah. nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and everybody is well aware of the importance of those, those primary right. nutrients. But a lot of times what we don't seem to keep focus on is the impact of balance and how these macronutrient levels impact the micronutrient levels. Sure. And you know, if I were to ask most growers or, or even agronomists, you know, well, what's more important, NP or K or uh, sulfur, boron, and manganese? Yeah. I'm betting that the majority of them are gonna say, well, NP and K is more important. Yeah. From the plant's perspective, they're all important. Right. It's just that NP and K are used in higher amounts than than the micronutrients. Right. And if we think about the situation, if we've got plenty of nitrogen or, you know, the answer is just put more nitrogen out there, but now we start to understand more nitrogen actually reduces my potassium uptake. And we start thinking more about balance. If I've got excess iron, that's gonna be antagonistic to my manganese levels. All these micronutrients have very important roles in, in most of it's in that cellular level, how the plants function, respire, uh, even in the reproductive phases. So when we start thinking about some of these situations, I can't fix pH overnight, that takes time. I can't raise potassium levels overnight, that takes time. But those balances or imbalances in a lot of cases are gonna have a major impact on the plant's ability to get the micronutrients, the zinc, the boron, the manganese, but the plant has to have those. Mm -hmm. Well, now with the strip till, putting them in a band, even if I, I'm not gonna farm that ground for a long period, I may only have it for, for example, three years, right. gives me the option to go in there with products and get the maximum potential out of that field with a minimal amount of cost, cost because yeah. I'm not broadcasting it and I'm not gonna expose, you know, if I've got high iron and I know the high iron levels are gonna impact manganese, and if I broadcast it and mix it in with my disc ripper or chisel plow or right. field cultivator, you know, very little of that's actually gonna be available to the plant, but if I put it in that zone and I minimize the amount of exposure that my manganese has to the high iron, then I'm gonna get the benefit from that manganese application at a reasonable cost. So am I, Am I reading into this correctly, Brad? Then, because the old old adage used to be that you know don't don't even mess with your micros if you if your macros aren't aren't up to speed. You're you're saying it's a balanced approach. It's a balanced approach. Yes. Yeah. So it it can you can have side effects both ways if if you're unbalanced in either direction, right? Very much so. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Always start with the pH, then your P and K. Yep. But then you have to look at how that those levels are going to impact sure. the rest of the groceries there on the shelf. Sure. Yeah. Overall strategy on on fertility. I mean, uh, what? Just any last thought here before we let you go. I mean, I'm sure there's a million different scenarios out there. Uh, you know, 14 million different uh, different strategies and and partnerships and analysis and uh, you know what you know. Beyond all that, what's the you know what's your big takeaway here on fertility into nineteen? Well, going into nineteen, I think the important thing is you've got to get a good handle on where we're at. Trying to understand 
what happened that we had the results we had in 18? Is it something mm-hmm. that I can change that I have control over? And the only way we're going to know that is by getting a good soil test. Sure. Soil tests aren't cheap, but it's really important to get a complete analysis. You have to have the whole picture in front of you to make those decisions. So maybe you pick and choose your battles, where you're going to spend the money to get the full analysis. Uh, start with maybe some of the fields that didn't produce as well. If a field's produced really well this year, obviously, Fertilizer fertility hasn't been its limiting factor. So kind of pick and choose your battles. You don't have to do every acre every year. Uh, that's not necessarily an approach you have to go by. But uh, I think the important thing is have a strategy in place, get samples, get good analysis. Um, then and, you can sit down and make, make And probably understand your environmental factors Absolutely. over the last two years that have played into this as well. So yeah, definitely. Okay. So I just got to go back, Brad. It's it's killing me. I'm from this generation. So when when you say manganese, I got to go to Caddyshack and Carl. Are you a Caddyshack fan? Oh yeah. Oh, man. Carl. You know, he's the only one that knew manganese. You know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know what manganese is. So no. <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks, Brad, for for coming in. Uh, it uh, it's always good to you know stay on top of of our fertility and, and always good to have you on. And uh, uh, like I said, we hope. Uh, we hope to have a, a better swing at harvest uh, data here in the next few weeks. So uh, stay in tune for that. We're gonna we're gonna put together some uh, podcasts here in the upcoming weeks on on some scenarios and and what looks good and, and some certain products and highlight some things here uh, as we move into the later pieces of October. But certainly uh, we'll see if mother mother nature allows us to get that data or not, and we'll see what. You know, Brad and I were you, you were we were talking right before we hit the record button. You know, this is kind of one of those oddball years on on analyzing this research data when you late planted corn and soybeans and now you're late harvested and high moistures and muddy conditions and you, you know, we've been fighting fighting the curveballs all year. You know, what what validity do we do we pay in into this data, right? I mean, is it is it is it good quality data or not, right? And that's the biggest thing that we have to think about in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's really get back to the basics. And yield starts from the ground up. Yep. Get the soil test, figure yep. out where we're at, yep. where we're where we're long or short, yep. and then we can make decisions. Okay. All right, Brad, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, everybody, thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll uh, hopefully uh, see you back here in a couple of weeks, and we'll uh, we'll talk products. Sounds good. Thank you.